1: There is yet another bit of evidence that for-profit long-term care homes are worse for residents. A new study in the Canadian Medical Journal finds that for-profit nursing homes in Ontario have had worse outbreaks of COVID-19 and more related deaths than their non-profit or public counterparts. Now, the numbers in all, 5,200 residents were infected during the study period with more than a quarter dying from the illness. That's in all long-term care homes in the province, but many of the for-profit homes or more of them are older with... uh, more beds in them and, uh, quote, barely meeting the 1972 design standards. The study suggests that for profit chain ownership could be a key factor in the worst hit facilities. And a commentary that went alongside with the paper said it might be time to turn the system over to public and nonprofit entities. And joining me now, one of the authors, Dr. Nathan Stahl with Geriatrics and Internal Medicine at Sinai Health. Hi, Dr. Stahl. Hi,
2: thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming on to tell us about this. So uh, give me some of the exact numbers that you found.
2: Yeah, so one of the you know, things we saw in the public discourse early on in the pandemic was, you know, were for-profit homes uh, faring worse when it came to COVID-19 uh, outcomes? And so we looked at this uh, using province-wide data, Um, As you highlight, um, one of the things that's important to note is that the for-profit status was not actually associated with whether a home has an outbreak of COVID-19 or not, whether the virus gets in or not. That seems to be more related to the uh, community prevalence of COVID-19 that's actually surrounding a nursing home. But once it does get into the home, that's where we see that for-profit status definitely has an effect on the outcomes observed. So for-profit homes um, compared to non-profit homes had outbreaks that were almost two times uh, larger or had risk of outbreaks that were two times larger and had, um, you know, a death rates that were 178% higher uh, when you looked at wow. for-profit homes compared to non-profit homes.
1: And. Was that did you were you able to figure out was that because of staffing was be, that because more of them had those you know four beds to a room
2: yeah, so when we when we looked at some of the the factors that could help explain this, um what came out as as you also highlighted were two things. one was that the older design standard of the home. So, actually, Ontario's uh, first nursing home, the, the Nursing Home Act in 1972 um, was the time where they actually established design standards for the physical plant of nursing homes. And um, shockingly, you know, many of these homes still meet or even fall below that 1972 standard. And what we saw was that there were a higher proportion of for-profit homes that had these older design standards. And the other thing was a lot of them are large chain ownership. And we know from previous evidence that chain ownership uh, tends to lead to lower levels of staffing. And we also suspect that when you're dealing with chain homes, where sometimes there can be 20 or 30 homes in, uh, in a chain, that you know, the more sort of central, even corporate-based leadership that might be happening uh, may have been less helpful here when you really needed boots on the ground to figure out what was going on to help the homes.
1: That's interesting, Uh, and would you say it's time to turn it over to the public and nonprofit system?
2: You know, it's a question that we've been, you know, increasingly being asked, and I think it's a worthy question. Um, There's two things that are important to note. The first is that in our study, it wasn't all for-profit homes that did badly. In fact, there were a number that actually did fine and had no outbreaks at all. If you look at the numbers um, in our study, only 42.8% of for-profit homes had an outbreak. So the majority did not have any outbreaks of COVID-19. So there are clearly good actors and there are bad actors here. That's the first uh, point to notice. And the second thing is that, you know, um, it's important to consider that nuance because I think some people have a an, uh, fair, um, and I'm not going to you know, get into this, but some people have a philosophical or moral opinion about how they feel about um you know, having for-profit entities in the long-term care sector when we're dealing with such a vulnerable population. And that's a fair point of view. But we also have to realize that um, turning it over to the province or nonprofit entities cannot simply be done overnight. And, you know, I think it's something to consider and, and to use pieces of evidence like ours in the larger conversation. But I think what's most immediately necessary is actually shoring up the homes right now um, so that they are better prepared to weather anticipated second waves, which could happen as early as weeks. And there are many things we ought to be doing. Um, the larger or longer term things about, you know, should we remove for profit entities? Should we nationalize long term care? How much should we rebuild? How much should we retrofit? Those are all very important conversations. But there are immediate things that also need to be happen that need to happen, and that can't be lost in this conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who say, well, the factor, what what you said in your earlier comment, isn't necessarily the fact that it's for profit. So uh, is the design factor then, again, is it the key factor, or, or what else would it be?
2: Well, I mean, look, uh, I mean, the, the objective evidence is that in our study, 12 of the 15 homes with the largest outbreaks, so the outbreaks that involve the most resident cases, and seven of the 10 homes with the most resident deaths were all for-profit homes, and they also happen to be for-profit homes that had older design standards and chain ownership. So, yes, there are other factors at play, but at the end of the day, for-profit homes tend to have, you know, a higher proportion of older design standards and chain ownership. And so we need to ask ourselves, why has it been that we have allowed these for-profit entities uh, to go so long, continue to relicense their homes uh, without upgrading the physical plant of their facilities? and You know, that's the objective evidence that we're dealing with here. So whether you want to call it uh, or attribute it to the, you know, the older design standards of the for-profit status, the two are in some way linked together. And at the end of the day, for-profit entities, um, you know, they have dual and I would argue impossible um, competing interests here, which is to the you know, health and well being of their residents and to upgrading the physical infrastructure of the home. But they also have obligations with their profits to their shareholders and their owners. And so, you know, clearly somewhere along the way, decisions have been made about how to allocate profits and that has not gone into upgrading many of the homes in a in the province that, you know, tend to be these older design standards.
1: Uh, is is it possible that some of the rationale for not forcing them to do it is that there there there's not really any other place to put some of the residents while they would upgrade?
2: I think that's absolutely a part of it. I mean, you know, if you, if you look at it, there's really has been no consequence uh, for these homes when they did not upgrade. There is a seemingly unlimited demand for long-term care in our province, as you know. There are tens of thousands of people who wait who are on waiting lists in the community. Um, there is huge need for beds, and increasing needs as the population continues to age. And you know, homes that have not upgraded have seen their beds. So you know, the term or the li- the license, the term of the license of these of the beds with the older design standards is shorter than the license terms uh, for newer beds. And you know, in some ways, that was to put a time limit on how long they were expected to upgrade these beds. But then we keep seeing these licenses, licenses being renewed. So there has been a lack of consequences. And frankly, I think they see the market, which is that there's a huge need and, and no consequences uh, to not doing this. So I think that, that definitely has uh, played a role here.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, not to get it too deep into politics, do you think that the measures that the government is taking right now, are they the right ones?
2: Well, you know, I, I think part of the problem that uh, and we've you know, received a lot of this sort of response to our article is that people are very angry that uh, you know, the focus of long-term care uh, homes in the province has been to build new homes and to uh, rebuild or retrofit the outdated ones. I don't, I don't see it as a zero-sum game here, and I think zero-sum thinking is actually dangerous. We definitely need to do that, and that's a long-term solution. But what the government has done right now is put all or committed all the resources and the efforts to those long-term solutions. There needs to be equal, if not more, focus right now on things that immediately need to be done. And that's fixing levels of staffing, so increasing the amount of staffing that uh, residents have within the home, uh, making sure that the employees of long-term care homes have full-time pay with benefits that enable them to work at one home, making sure that uh, there are adequate stockpiles of personal protective equipment for long-term care homes. that may They may require more uh, personal protective equipment in order to allow them to reintegrate visitors and family caregivers, which we know is essential, and also allowing them to have the uh, infection prevention and control expertise they will need to battle the successive sort of outbreaks that will unfortunately occur in homes. And so, uh, you know, we have to focus both on short-term and long-term solutions. My argument has been that you know, they, they have made a, ca- a a plan and commitments to some of the long-term solutions, but they ought to be doing things immediately right now as well.
1: Uh, you've also been very vocal about the need to let the families back in the homes that started to happen. But are you expecting a spike as a result of that?
2: Uh, well, you know, the the evidence, well, so firstly, you know, yesterday the province opened up to indoor visits. Uh, you know, a maximum of, uh, with, with a lot of sort of stringent uh, restrictions on, on how that can be done. And, and in particular, they still need to attest to having a negative COVID-19 result. They still need to maintain physical distance. And of course, they need to be masked and follow all the infection prevention and control procedures. So I think the the risk, if that is followed, is actually quite low. But actually, that's not what we were asking for or what we've been advocating for. What we've been advocating for is to have the province distinguish between those family caregivers who are providing direct care and those who are coming for socialization. And the family caregivers need to be able to provide direct care to the residents in the home. And they can do that in the same ways that we've been having staff do that, using uh, having universal masking, subjecting them to the same testing requirements that staff are subjected to. And... International evidence from the Netherlands uh, would suggest that reintegrating family caregivers into the home, and they did this with over 20 homes, did not lead to any cases. And we have local case examples here in Ontario and in Toronto uh, specifically about where they reintegrated family caregivers without new outbreaks. Certainly, there, it will take on some risk, but our argument has been that the risk of deterioration to residents' health is far greater right now than the risk of reintroducing COVID into the homes.
1: Okay, we're late getting to the news. Dr. Nathan Stahl, thank you so much.